Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with a colleague of many years, Stanley Johnson, Creative Director, Brand Transformer and Copywriter, and currently one half of Stan Lee. Welcome, Stan. Well, thank you, Darren. How are you? I'm very well. And look, thanks for making time uh, to catch up while I'm down in Melbourne. Um, I know you're, a, you're well, you're not originally a Melbourne boy, are you? No, no. Well, it's a, this could take up your entire podcast, my uh, travelling story. But no, I had uh, parents who moved a lot and they still do. They've moved up to Queensland about three months ago. So, yeah, my parents are English. We came to Australia as 10-pound poms. A couple of years later, like all 10-pound poms, they didn't like it and they went back. Didn't like that, went to South Africa. Didn't like that, went back, went back to South Africa. And we ended up here many years later when I was just before my 21st birthday. So, but I've been a Melbourne boy pretty much ever since. And I'd have to say you are, from my perspective, a quintessential Melbourne boy. <laughs> you are someone that is interested in everything from popular culture to classics. You comment a lot on Twitter about mm-hmm. the things you observe. You share a lot on social media, but it's not the banal. It's actually the quite insightful. What is it about, you know, sharing your thoughts and insights on social media that really, you know, clearly uh, engages you and your audience? That's that's a question that no one's ever asked me and I've, I've never really thought about it. So I joined a conversation on Twitter the other day, which was about uh, someone had written about the Sydney fireworks and how Melbourne could decide to have no fireworks, but in Sydney they had to go ahead because it's kind of like an advertising thing for Sydney. You know, it's on the world news in Sydney. And interestingly, years ago I went to a a conference talk by, uh, I've forgotten the man's name, but his story was about the creative class and he was looking at creative cities. Uh, Richard Florida. That's the one, yeah. So mm. Richard Florida's whole kind of theory of creative yeah. centres, which were always second cities, not main cities. So in the same way as London is the home of the music business in the UK, but all of the great bands come out of Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Bristol, they're regional. Uh, and so when I arrived in Melbourne, there was very much a Melbourne-Sydney kind of rivalry and I think that with the arrival of, of, of Kane into the government and then the changes that evolved in Melbourne where they opened up licensing and discovered the laneways, Melbourne itself decided, you know what, let's stop trying to be Sydney and just be Melbourne. Mm. And Melbourne never looked back. And I love the way that Russell Howcroft is a big push, A, for creativity, but also for Melbourne as a creative centre as well. And so Melbourne became comfortable with itself and it grew and prospered because of that. Whereas Sydney now still is trying to be a world city, Melbourne doesn't really have that worry. So what you're saying is uh, in some ways you've just settled into the zeitgeist of Melbourne, you know, the mm. sort of culture of Melbourne, of just being engaged and involved in the things that are happening. Here. Yeah, and I think also I arrived, you know, because it's a while ago now, but I arrived at, at, a, at a time when Melbourne culturally was really kind of in, in an interesting place. I've just finished reading over 
the, the holidays book called uh, Sweet Dreams by Dylan Jones. He's the editor of GQ in the UK, which looks at uh, the music industry or music and its impact on popular culture in the UK. So it starts in 75 with the birth of punk or the stirrings of punk and it ends with Live Aid at the end of 1985 and how the kids that were a kind of who'd seen David Bowie and Roxy Music on Top of the Pops became the first punks and the kids that went into that then became the New Romantics and they basically gave birth to what we see today. So you read a lot around the, the way that these kids were at the time and they were all about self-expression, sexual identity, all the sort of stuff that you see covered in popular culture now, they were kind of like moving on that back in the 70s. So Melbourne, when I got here, was in that same kind of phase. It had a really interesting kind of independent electronic music scene. There was stuff going on that there wasn't in Sydney. Sydney was very much a rock and roll town. So as I always say, and I apologise to Sydney because I do love it, it's a great place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. So it's interesting because also that was at a stage of your life mm. where, you know, you're no longer the awkward teenager. You're mm. actually starting out, you know, life as an, really as an adult yeah. and defining what that's actually going to look like because that would be in your sort of early to mid-20s. Yeah, it? and in actual fact, so my family, as I said, they moved a lot. So we came here to Melbourne and my dad, so my dad was a loom tuner. And for those who don't know what that is, which is pretty much all your listeners, he used to repair weaving looms. So today, all kind of uh, fabric and manufacturing, most of it's done in China. Uh, and so that's another job that we've, we've seen lost through globalisation. But the, he worked, he got a job, he worked for Johnson & Johnson yep. in South Africa. They brought our family out lock, stock and barrel to Melbourne. Uh, and I remember at the time the letter that came with it that said that, that he would be working in a place called Wong Thaggy, which was, and I quote, an outer suburb of Melbourne. So, of course, <laughs> when we arrive here, uh, after a couple of days, we go out to visit to the Johnson & Johnson factory in Wong Thaggy and discover that in actual fact, Wong Thaggy is in Gippsland, yeah. uh, not Melbourne. And no. so, you know, there is no way that I, you know, as, as, as a young man of almost 21, could kind of have any kind of existence in this little kind of, you know, lost mining town in Gippsland. Well, especially having travelled, so, you know, yeah. moved so much yeah. and experienced so many different yeah. cultures. And yeah. But, 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 but what that meant, Darren, was that then my parents went and I stayed in Melbourne on my own. So I'm probably one of the few kids who didn't leave home, home left him. So I was, I've lived in Melbourne pretty much on my own yeah. from the day I got here, whereas right. my parents moved to Wonthaggy. Three months later, didn't like Wonthaggy. Bought, my old man bought himself out of the contract and then they moved to Adelaide. Right. So, okay. yeah. Now, um, we worked together last century, or mm -hmm. some might say last millennium. Mm -hmm. uh, we were both creative directors at an agency that doesn't exist anymore called yeah, J. Walter Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, but there's something else we have in common. We both got into advertising through a thing called Copy School run by Marcus Tarrant. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting today because back then, like everybody says to young kids who want to get into the business, you've got to do award school. You need to do award school. But back then, award school was very much a Sydney-centric thing. And so here in Melbourne, we had copy school, which was started by Marcus, as you said. And I, I, I think I'm going to be brutal and say it was a harder thing to get into than award school is. They, I, they, they took mm -hmm. a strict 12 and no more. 
Yeah, I remember at the time they went the first night that we all gathered together at one of the agencies, and uh, they said we had over five hundred applications mm. that they went through to pick the uh, to pick the twelve. And it was interesting because it was such an eclectic group of people. There was uh, a woman there that was very good at writing in twenty five words or less. Mm. And all her friends said, you should become a copywriter, which is why she yeah. applied, you know. Whereas there were also people there that, you know, had family or some sort of connection and they always wanted to be in advertising, yeah. in quotes, you know. So was your experience the same, quite an eclectic group and, and the opportunity to work with some terrific advertising creatives? Yeah, it was, an, it was an interesting collection of people. One, I was probably the oldest in our class. You know, I was probably knocking on the door of 30 then when most of them were a little bit younger. I was already a qualified tradesman and I'd already moved into a second career. But I'd met my wife at a party. She'd worked at Clems. Her best friend worked at Clems and then JWT. And so they saw in me the latent creativity that I never actually knew I had. I used to write occasional reviews and stuff for uh, music mags because that's my thing. I was a uh, a volunteer program coordinator at PBS. I kind of introduced hip hop onto kind of uh, onto public radio, um, but advertising as as a skill set didn't really even know that I had that. And so, thanks to my wife and her friend, her late friend Mary, pushed me. I applied for the copy school, and kind of the rest is history. So I owe it all to my wife, really. And uh, one of the good things about Copy School, from my experience, was uh, first of all getting feedback from lots of different creative directors. Because, mm. like every two or three weeks, you'd be in a new agency, you were showing your work, they'd, t- you know, they'd give you feedback on it, they'd give you briefs to work on, and things like that. Mm. Which meant at the end of it, not only did you have this sort of wealth of exposure to lots of different sort of approaches and philosophies, you also had what started as a folio, you know, the start of that that (laughs) you can take around. Yeah, which is very much the same as would happen with award school, you know, where kids come out with a folio. But if there was one piece of advice that I was given during those copy school things was once you come out the end of it, you're you're coming out with a folio, but that's the beginning, not the end. Because what you've got to realise is that those 12 briefs that you've now put into your folio, all these other 11 people around the table, have got that same work. And so if you're then hustling to kind of show your folio to people, oh, you've got the KFC ad. Oh, you've got the cold supermarket ad. Oh, I see you've got that one as well. So you have this, you may not have the same ideas, but the same brands as everybody else. And you want to stand out. So the first thing you should do when you finish is throw that folio away and do a whole new one, Yeah, which is the best advice I ever got. Well, the folio should always be a work in progress, shouldn't it? Mm. You know, I, I remember Claire Worthington, who was a renowned mm. uh, uh, headhunter. The grand Claire, dame of headhunters, really. Yeah, said to me, the first ad should be your best, the last ad should be your best, and the one in the middle should be the best, and there should be nothing in between that's anything worse than the first and the last. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, didn't really help Claire, but... I'll work on it. But, but and, 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 and she was right. And the other thing that she said is that it's better to have six great ads than 12 True. okay ones. Yeah. And I always remember, you know, after I'd done a little bit of uh, early work, so I worked for a while at uh, an agency called Thompson White. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, which was quite, which was quite a well-known agency back then. Uh, the Tony White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Tony White's son Ant, of course, went on to uh, be grad director or chief creative officer, or whatever of um, uh, CHE Proximity here. I think yeah. He's just left recently yeah. as well. So that's kind of a there's a generational shift there. But I remember going in there in you know in those early days and showing my folio, and uh, Stephen Fisher said to me. He just asked me a question. He said, mate, some, I love the way you think. Some good work in here, but why have you got that one? And I said to him, oh, that was like the first real ad I did. That, you know, and, he, and he just looked at me and he said, no, just because it's ran doesn't mean it's folio worthy. And that, that was really great advice because back then when you just got a bunch of homemade ads in your book, and they were books back then, to have a real actual thing that's kind of appeared on the radio or whatever, you think it's it's got to be amazing. But in actual fact, it was nowhere near the quality of the, rest of, of, the of the work that got me in there in the first place, yeah. Now, I want to talk a bit about uh, your career because mm-hmm. you have had uh, experience in a number of different creative opportunities. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, you've got extensive work in agencies, yeah. advertising agencies, both Big network agencies, as I mentioned, yeah. JWT. Uh, what else was there? Proximity mm-hmm. and Wonderman. Mm-hmm. Was that also in the mix? You've also uh, worked and even been part of an agency startup with mm-hmm. Faith. So you've got that body of work. Then you've also, over your career, you've started your own consult creative mm-hmm. consultancy. And in fact, you know, Stanley now is mm-hmm. uh, you and uh, Lee Look, Callister. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, are doing you know that consultancy work yeah. now, working directly with clients yeah. without account management and you know the, and the like in the mm. in the way, some would say. Yeah. And then you've also worked in-house for a client, yeah. actually running, building and running a creative department mm. in-house. There wouldn't be a lot of people that have got that breadth of experience. I'd just really like to get your observations about it. Yeah, it's interesting because I never really kind of uh, think about it that way. I um, I remember Chris Ellis, uh, who was at Cummins and Partners at the time. So Chris is someone who I, who I mentored when he was much younger. And I've mentored a lot of uh, young creative people in Melbourne. But uh, but Chris said to me that what he, what he most admired about me was the way I'd been able to continually reinvent myself and stay relevant. And it's quite, it's it's an odd thing. It was a really kind of... I love that he said it, but I found it difficult to come to terms with because as I as I like to proudly say, a working class son of factory workers, I never really considered myself as having a career. To me, it was always a job. So I was never looking to reach that next level and do that next thing. I was just evolving as time went by. What, what's that <laughs> saying? You were a jobbing writer. Yeah. Yeah, and proud of it. Yeah. But, yeah, and, and, and so I just evolved more through, you know, kind of situation and osmosis than anything else. Um, but if I think back on it now, when I came into JWT, and it, God, correct me if I'm wrong, but I could believe it was you that recommended me to somebody else there, and that was uh, a guy called Steve Meltzer, who was the crowd director of what was called the direct marketing part of JWT. Yeah, dialogue. And... He was quite keen on my book and blah, 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 and it went really well. And But I said to him, I've got to be honest with you, Steve, I don't really picture myself years from now cutting out coupons and 
doing kind of envelopes. The, the direct marketing world doesn't really appeal to me. This was mid-90s. And Steve kind of said, I'm just going to stop you there. I'm going to talk about what we do here. Uh, he was this weird kind of Californian guy, looked a bit like Jackson Brown, probably smoked as much dope as Jackson Brown as well. But he said to me, you look around this building here, here at JWT, we're about 150 people. And there's about seven or eight of us in this little group that I run. 10 years from now, we'll probably have this entire floor. 20 years from now, there'll be a special group that make TV ads. Started to talk about the arrival of the internet, um, or as they called it back then, the information superhighway, and how that was the sort of work that they were doing and how they were taking the techniques and kind of, I guess what you'd call today, the data, and applying that to creativity. And my eyes lit up at that idea. And so I thought to myself, this is actually a way to future-proof myself in coming into this. So I kind of swallowed that hook, line and sinker. And truth be told, it didn't make for an easy career because I was always, I think, a little bit ahead of where traditional advertising world was. Um, fast forward a few years, I, my wife and I went to live and work in London. We were there about three years. And after I came back, uh, so the job that I left to come back here to, so after three years in the UK, we come back to Melbourne. Um, the job that I left in London, I was the European creative director of uh, the integrated part of FCB. Uh, I came back to Melbourne and when What, what was the job you left? I was the European creative director. No, in director. Melbourne when you went to London. Oh, I was a creative director at JWT. Right. Um, when I came back, I went and saw a few agencies because I was in no hurry. I just want to kind of settle back in. I went and saw direct marketing agencies. I was just looking for work for the time being, not really a job. I wasn't ready for that. I just did some brown. Went and saw direct marketing agencies. The creative director said to me, um, great book, mate, great book, uh, amazing work. Do you have any long copy you could show us? I'm like, I'm a creative director. I wouldn't be there if I couldn't write. A bit embarrassing. Went in to see uh, a few, I guess what we'll call traditional or creative agencies today. Yeah, mate, you do that kind of digital stuff. We don't do that here. Yet. Um, and then went and saw a couple of uh, digital places or uh, new media, as we called them back then, who said, what's that? You were a creative director, but you're a copywriter. How does that work? That's a designer's job. And so each part of the advertising ecosystem had a different viewpoint. And so I never really fitted in anywhere. So in some ways, you know, you became like this, uh, they saw you as different shaped pegs and they didn't have a hole that you could fit in. Yeah. You know, you were square, triangular, star-shaped and round and no one had a space for you. Yeah, it was very odd because the guy where I worked before I went to copy school, there was, a old, there was an older guy there who pulled me aside one day and he said, mate, it's not really for you, this job. You're a, you're a round hole in a square peg here. And... That still seemed to be the case in Melbourne when I came back many years later. Look, I think uh, compared to especially Europe and the US, the, the Australian market and, and uh, even compared to Asia, the Australian market was particularly slow in evolving. Mm. You know? And it took that first 10 years of the 21st century I think advertising was sort of clinging on to 
what it had always known rather than embracing it. I, I remember, yeah, even in the late 90s, having similar types of conversations before I started um, yeah. Trinity P3. Yeah. You know, similar types of conversations about, you know, the early days of, you know, what what does the internet mean and how does it fit in with traditional, you know, mm. like then. And I don't think anyone answered it. I think it was, you know, not until the last 10 years, post the global financial crisis, mm. that suddenly it took on a life of its own and then wasn't integrated in the opportunities of the past. Yeah. You know, it almost became, oh, well, everything's digital now and so we don't need to think about any of those other things. Do you think that's fair or am I being harsh? No, I think you're probably pretty right. And, you know, as I've always argued that everything is digital today, from the music that we listen to uh, to, the, to the thing that we watch it on. So everything today is digital. But I think back to there was a, I guess we'll, I don't know if seminal is the word, but there was kind of a key book from the late 2000s by Joseph Jaff uh, about the end of the 30-second TV yeah. ad. And I look at that now and, you know, so, yeah, he's, he was onto something there, but at the same time he was so wrong because YouTube came along and suddenly uh, after that came uh, Facebook and then Instagram and then Snapchat and now, you know, kind of uh, TikTok and everything else. And so video has become the preeminent format. And so it may be that the 30-second ad as a concept has died, but the idea of visual kind of storytelling and, and you know, kind and of... brain storytelling, yeah, yeah. Sight, sound and movement, as they called it at Saatchi's many years ago, is, is, is bigger than ever. And without the constraints that television brings, you know, yeah. this idea of 15 seconds, 10 seconds, yeah. uh, 30 seconds, 45, you know, now you can make the story as long as it needs to be yeah. to tell the story yeah. and as long as you engage the audience. Yeah, or as, you know, people have often, you know, like if you do a little bit of work in kind of content stuff, and I've done a fair bit of that, and kind of people want to cram too much in, and I'm like, yeah, but it's, 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 it's people are going to lose interest. Mm. So the question is always, so what's the optimum time? How long should it be? And my answer is always as long as it's interesting because mm. once it stops being interesting, then people stop watching. Yeah. Now, so that's uh, up to that point. You're largely in major agencies, like network agencies. Mm. When was it that you went into the sort of you know, independent agencies, the the Cummins and the uh, and Faith? Okay. You know? So so and what's the difference from being sort of the creative director in a department in a major agency, even, mm. even you know, a, a, a major creative leader, yeah. as you were in London, yeah. you know, to come back to his an agency <coughs> and you're pretty much the creative lead and answerable for the creative in that department. Is it different? I think the role changes slightly in that, when you're in a smaller agency, there is a you, you still very hands on. Uh, you know, you still kind of are doing work, not sitting there generating all the ideas, but being involved closely in the work. Whereas in those you know kind of bigger, higher up roles, and it's interesting, all of those job titles have all kind of gone up the ladder now from what was a credit director twenty years ago is now an ECD, and the ECDs become a CCO and all that sort of stuff. Yes, the chief creative officer yeah. I always thinks a good one. But anyway. Yeah, I'm never a fan of uh, uh, military terminology in, in advertising and marketing, but that's just me. But but those those higher in, in those bigger agencies, 
you spend a lot more time with clients, spend a lot more time with account service people uh, and the creatives, you just encourage and kind of help them to kind of fly. Whereas in the smaller agencies where you're probably working with slightly more junior talent as well, it's much more of a mentoring kind of growing role and then you're working with the clients as well. So that's probably the difference. It's very similar, but different at the same time. Do you think it's also you're more aware of your place in a smaller agency? Like in a big agency, yes, you've got a title and you've got mm. a department that you fit in, but more role aware of your function, you know, in that if you're not there, who else is going to do it? Mm. Well, if you think back, to, and I know it's a long time ago now, but when we worked at JWT, there were, what, five creative directors. directors and then an executive creative director above that, and we would have a Monday morning creative directors meeting. And so there you've got a network of peers that you can kind of share your, your, your problems with, you can seek, seek help from. Uh, you've got someone above you that you kind of answer to purely on the work and creativity and nothing else. Whereas when you're in a smaller agency, then you've got, you know, well, you've got a bit of skin in the game, depending on who it is that you're working with. But those relationships need to be really tight with your the the, the other partners or, or the key people in the business. Because if they're not, then it becomes very difficult. Yeah. Now, you started your own uh, creative consultancy. Is that right? Uh, and I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Oh. Taku? Oh, gee, that's so long ago, yeah. yeah and, and But you've also had work with Stan yeah. as being your sort of ongoing, yeah. and now Stan Lee. Mm -hmm. You know, how's that different again? You know, I'm interested in when you strip away all of the support that you have, yeah. even in a independent agency, mm -hmm. and it's basically you may be a creative mm -hmm. partner and the client, what's that like? Well, I think there's one thing that you learn pretty quickly is that it's very easy to take account service people for granted. And I think when I was much younger and, uh, you know, I was a bit of a firebrand creative, uh, butted heads with a lot of people. Um, but once I became a creative director, the first thing I said to Michelle Lawrence, who who, who made me, he, he, he offered me that opportunity and I wasn't sure if I should actually take it. This is a J. Walter Thompson. Uh, because unbeknownst to him, I'd only been a full-time copywriter for two years. But because I was older than everybody else and I had a natural maturity and I guess a, an, an, an innate leadership that I never knew was there, he thought that I'd been doing it for 10 years. Mm. Uh, so it was the right thing to do, but I wasn't really sure. So I said to him, I've worked with crowd directors before who were terrible managers and I don't want to be one of those. So can you send me on a management training course? So being Jay Walter Thompson, there was always money for training because it was the golden age of the University of Advertising. And off I went on my five-day management training course and came back and really then started to blossom because what I realised was that it was about building relationships. Great work doesn't happen without great relationships. And I kind of, I, I use that kind of way of working even to this day. I've, there's still a couple of young people that I mentor having a few issues at work. I say to them, what you've got to do is you've got to get in, have a coffee, talk to people, build those relationships. So if you can build that trust, that's how great work happens. It doesn't happen because you think you're awesome, which is what most young creative people think. Do you think some of your uh, 
reticence or hesitancy was, you know, you, you describe yourself as coming from, you know, working class mm. English factory workers. Mm. It wasn't a bit of, you know, the working class can kiss my ass, I've got the foreman's job at last. <laughs> is it, uh, is, is, was it this sense of, you know, perhaps stepping up out of being one of the workers to, you know, one of the... Uh, the bosses. No, not so much. But I have to say, though, it's not easy when you are one of the workers and they make you one of the bosses. That's very difficult because then you've got, you know, so the way that you, if, if I knew then what I knew now, that would have kind of been a, you know, a hell of a help where you learn the difference between being a manager and being a leader. And just because you're a manager doesn't mean you're a leader. And just because you're a leader, you don't need to be a manager. That sort of stuff that I learned later in life, I didn't have back then. So I was kind of unprepared for that. So it, it, we did amazing things when I was in charge of the group that I ran. So I'm, uh, there, there's, no, there's no problem there. But it was a little bit difficult working with someone who we worked together side by side. We were, you know, like we were, we were partners and suddenly we weren't. And that was hard. Yeah, I remember one of the hardest things was uh, being told I had to lay off a team. And, you know, these are people that you work with, you've mm. employed them, you've brought them into the agency. You know, it's a, it's a very hard thing to yeah. do. But, uh, you know, it's expected that you'll do it. Hey, um, just to move on, Stan, uh, so then, you know, work in-house agencies mm. are really something that's only happening in this country. They're very big in the U.S., mm. The in-house agencies, they even have their own conference of the in-house agency conference in the US right. run by yeah. the uh, a &A, the, uh, and But in Australia, it's still relatively rare. But you managed to uh, actually be inside a major advertiser running their in-house agency. How does that compare to both being in an agency and being in a creative consultancy? Um so I was working at Cummins and Partners, or as it was still then Cummins Ross. It had just started. It had just evolved into Cummins and Partners. Loved that agency. Got a lot of time for, for Sean and Chris Jeffers and the people involved there. I really loved that agency. But at the same time, I was comfy there. I knew what I was doing. I was much loved. I was doing great things. And an opportunity came knocking uh, for a creative director's job with a tech company, an Australian tech company, but the uh, headhunter wouldn't tell me who it was. What he said was, I reckon there's only two or three people in the country who could do this job and you're one of them. And I thought, yeah, you're just blowing smoke up my bum now, mm -hmm. but I will entertain it anyway. Um, can you tell me who it is? And he said, oh, I need to get a yay or a nay before I do that. So I said, okay, let me have a think about it and I'll get back to you tomorrow. So um, I had a chat to, um, Zach Martin, who was then a young kind of up-and-coming planner. He's now doing very nicely at, um, at Ogilvy. And I told Zach the story. And he said, oh, who do you think it is? And we were trying to guess who it was. And we couldn't because we couldn't think of an Australian kind of tech company that, that would kind of have a grave director. Anyway, to cut a long story short, that opportunity was more than just being the, I guess, running an internal agency. It was a tech company in transition that had started off in the early days of software and now the cloud had come. It had been disrupted to a certain extent, so it needed to reinvent itself. Um, and that was the opportunity. They were looking for someone. It was a newly created position. They already had a little internal agency, but they called it creative services. But they wanted it to run like a proper agency. 
They were looking for a creative director. So that meant to drive the sort of, you know, think creative thinking and strategy yeah. from inside that group yeah. for the company rather yeah. than just doing the advertising yeah. and promotion. Bit. Yeah, very much so. So the role that I had almost kind of became two roles. There was kind of rebuilding and skilling up and transforming that internal agency. But at the same time, working across the business as a creative director, so lateral thinking, questioning. So I worked a lot with the with the people team on cultural initiatives. I worked with the executive team on like brand values and kind of mission and stuff like that. So it was without a doubt, I think, a, a, an incredible opportunity that I never would have got working at J. Walter Thompson. Oh, well, an amazing opportunity. Yeah. But also I think you're, um, you were a little bit uh, you know, humble in that there are not many creative people that have such a strong legacy of B2B, mm. right? And part of this is, you know, early days of working in uh, direct marketing yeah. and direct response and understanding because there is a difference. You know, people say, oh, B2B, B2C, same, same. Same, similar, but there's actually quite a different mindset, isn't, mm. isn't there, in B2B as opposed to sort of mass consumer or do you disagree? Um, I don't agree or disagree. I like to call it people to people, um, you know, because if you're talking to uh, the head of IT in a company or you're talking to the, you know, like the guy in charge of customer service, it's still a person that you're talking to and you're talking to their, you are talking to their ego. You're talking to them looking successful in front, in, in, in front of the person who sits above them in the feeding chain. So it is still very much kind of personal and and one to one, but it's in the nuances and the way things are delivered that mm. it, that it changes. Well, and especially creatively, mm. because that is where you define the conversation, you define yeah. the tone, you define the the word. You know, you choose the words and the images that are going to. I think the other thing as well, Darren, is that in 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 kind of big agencies, you know, where they've got great kind of strategy planning people is that you know what we'll call kind of classic consumer advertising has got so much strategic input in it that you get a great brief and you can make great ads but when you're working in that b2b space that kind of level that high level kind of strategic thinking is often not there the five-star talent that's working on amazing tv ads is not there you're working with sometimes second division talent and so it's, it's about kind of how can you make the most of those opportunities? Mm. How can you kind of take an ordinary brief or a poorly written brief and do something with it? So Lee often says to me, because I grumble about briefs all the time, Lee always says to me, if these guys could write a great brief, they wouldn't be talking to us. Um, but someone said to me many, many years ago that in this business, there's only a handful of people that get truly great creative briefs. And the rest of us, we all work on shit. So what you've got to do is you find yourself the place you can do the best shit anyone's ever seen and you'll be happy and you'll be prosperous. And it was so true because that was what happened for me when I went to JWT. Mm. I, I got briefs that were not great, but the clients were lower down the pecking order, so the guys at the top weren't looking at it. And so that how you know we got JWT Melbourne's first piece of work into CAN. We did that. And it was done on an ad for Cole Supermarkets and it was a store refurbishment. So not even a big thing. Mm. 
but we got away with that sort of work and it was getting away with it because the people that we worked with were not the heads of marketing. They were not CMOs. They were like younger junior marketers who were just who had the freedom to work. It is, it is the truth, isn't it, that the larger the organisation, the more important the piece of work, the more the committee effect yeah. kicks in, that everyone has an opinion. Mm. And if they're not the ultimate decision maker, they're second guessing the ultimate decision maker. Yeah. You know, I call it the, uh, the doctor no effect. Everyone can say no, but only one person in the organisation can actually say yes. And that really is, is the lesson for every creative person in advertising today is that if you're, when you're dealing with the clients, if the people who you're dealing with are not the ultimate decision maker, when, the, when you come back from the presentation and they bought it, it doesn't mean what they bought is what you're going to make. Yeah. Because they have the power to, the only one person has the power to say yes at the end. And that's the person right at the top. Everybody else has the power to say, yeah, I love it. But, but I also like the fact that you've highlighted the distinction that on some briefs, the ultimate decision maker could be someone that you're actually working with because mm. it's deemed corporately yeah. not to be that important. Yeah. So you can actually work directly with that decision maker. I yeah. mean, of course, someone yeah. could come in later and say, oh, you shouldn't have done mm. that. But in some ways, the opportunities can be in all sorts of places, you know, the 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 idea of waiting for the big brief because that'll be the big opportunity is not true, that sometimes the smaller briefs, the smaller projects are the opportunities to do amazing work. Yeah, and also you can get great self-fulfilment on those jobs because people don't look at stuff. Like I remember when I worked at Wonderman where Ford was our primary client um, and doing some stuff on Ford and there were a little bit of, there was like a little paragraph of terms and conditions that needed to go with whatever it was, you know, that was going through the mail. And I wrote those terms and conditions uh, and I put a smile on every line. And I got an email from one of the guys in the legal team to say, mate, we love what you're doing with this stuff. Change the word here or there, but overall, keep it up because you're making us look good. Yeah. So, you know, the opportunity to even make your terms and conditions interesting is important, you know, and, and, I, and I got that, doing that from uh, uh, being, you know, like many years ago, buying a Ben Sherman shirt and the washing instructions, care instructions. It just said, smile. just give it to your mum, tell her to put it in the wash. And that was the care instructions. And I thought that was so kind of, you know, is that you don't have to always do what you're told. Yeah. I also like the fact that, um, you know, what, you, what you're saying there is that, you know, today terms and conditions mm. and technology are just getting stamped into ads. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're becoming the headlines a lot of the time. <laughs> well, it's because they're also on the brief. Yeah. But anyway, look, back to um, I, I want to pick up on something you said about when you're working in-house. You're yeah. working on the, the brand you know, vision and mm. the brand statements. You're working with the people uh, mm. area. Yeah. What... What did that look like and, and what did you learn and what did you bring to that function? Um, I was very lucky when I went in there because even though I was headhunted for the job, I still went through more interviews and psych tests than was imaginable. And at the end of it all, because it was a new position, the CEO had said to the CMO, who was the person bringing me in, before I finally sign off on this, I'd really like to meet this guy. 
And so I went for a coffee with the CEO. And I'll be honest, I'd never met a CEO before. Actually, I had, but they were guys in startups. So they were just guys in hoodies who called themselves a CEO. But this was a real CEO of a, of a, you know, of a top 100 Australian company with 2,000 employees. Never met one of those before. And um, there was just something about him and the questions that he asked. And I gave as good as I got. Because to be honest, as much as I was keen on the job, I wanted them to be as keen on me. So I was kind of, you know, I was, a, I wouldn't say lippy, but I definitely kind of gave back as good as I was given. Uh, but what that meant was when I came in, I felt that I was emboldened because I had the CEO seal of approval to go in and make a change. I didn't have to pussyfoot around. I didn't have to ask permission. I probably should have, but I'm always a do it and then apologize later person. So when we did the we we did a large brand transformation uh, because of the fact, as I said, that the business had been disrupted and was looking to evolve. Um, where I would show stuff to the CEO, and he'd kind of like, yeah, I love that. Oh, that's great. Um, and that was. That was it. It was just a scribble on a bit of paper. You didn't have to do a big presentation because there was a trust there. Again, it always comes down to trust. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? If only uh, marketers were more open to bringing their creative people Mm. or their agency into those conversations because I think the more we can eliminate the second-guessing... Yes. Ultimately, the CEO is the chief brand officer. Mm. You know, we could open those channels more. It used to happen in the old days. You know, even before you and I were mm. in advertising, you'd hear about the CEOs or managing directors of agencies having lunch with the CEO, mm. not just the CMO, and yeah. they would have these conversations. You know, and and something that got lost along the way. Yeah, I th- yeah, it's it's. I think the agency relationship has gone from partners to service providers um, which I think is a bit of a shame because it should be very much working together and that was the great thing about working in-house you know was the ability to kind of uh, impact and make change that maybe you couldn't have done from the outside in still has still came with the same problems came with different types of problems really it was also where I learned the difference between a client brief and an agency brief. Mm. Again, the people that you take for granted when you're, you know, when you're a young creative person are the people that you miss when you don't have them. I'm sitting here thinking I should write letters or emails and apologise to every account management person (laughs) I've ever worked with, having talked with. Look, Stan, uh, unfortunately, time's got away from us. It's been terrific to catch up. Thank you. It's, It's a unique from my perspective, perspective that you've brought to this conversation. We've known each other for, you know, many decades, Mm -hmm. um, but I've never really appreciated until this conversation the sort of breadth of uh, experience that you've had and the the insights that you bring from that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for making time. This was a very uh, unexpected conversation, to be honest, because I think we had a couple of topics in mind and we've kind of touched on a million, but never really really got to what I came for. But if you're happy, I'm happy. (laughs) Look, uh, just one question before you go. Mm -hmm. Looking back on your career, 
What's the one thing you would do differently if you could do it all again? Thank you.